0: Well, good morning again and Merry Christmas. Thank you for uh, being with us this morning. I know I read some news about uh, churches canceling uh, service on uh, this morning, et cetera, and because there was going to be, they expected low participation, et cetera, and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, we're glad to be here on a Sunday morning that coincides with Christmas morning where we get to join together as we ought and celebrate the coming of our. Savior for us. And uh, so praise God for this opportunity. If you would turn in your Bible, please, to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we have been spending time this uh, entire month looking at these themes in Scripture that begin in, uh, in the very beginning and then carry through to the end. And so we've spent quite a bit of time in, in uh, or we've touched on Revelation 21 and 22 as we have been um, Uh, spending our time together, but there are various themes in Scripture that we see begin at the very beginning, all the way back in Eden, and we see them tied together at the end of uh, Revelation 21 and 22, and many of them, very many of them, travel right through the Advent, travel right through uh, the uh, Christmas story at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, and so um, if you're a a student of literature, that ought to clue you in that these are important themes that are intended by the author for us. And so we are uh, approaching our last one in our time today, and we're going to be looking at the wonder of God with us. And in preparation for this, I want to read for us uh, these words uh, for this first paragraph in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven. and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words from the end of all things, which really is the beginning of Uh, eternity with you and new heavens and the new earth. But it's at the end of our book. It's at the end of what we uh, perhaps can imagine. And we see the wondrous fact that God makes His dwelling place with man as their God. He will be with His people as their God. They will be His people uh, perfectly and eternally in an environment that can express that fully. What a blessed, blessed destination. But we're not there yet, Father. We're in this world. We're in this life. We are in this form, and we have these bodies with their propensity to temptation and sin. We confess that we are short-sighted, and we don't often see to the end of a matter. We're distracted by the things around us that we do see that that would cause us to focus on the here and now so much more than on that. Father, help us even today as we look at this topic of what it means to have God with us, to be in your very presence. I pray for your blessing on our time. I pray that you would minister to us from your word even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is where we're going. This is the End of the story, as it were, and of course, there's a lot there, and we could spend time developing that. And and uh, but we see that actually, this concept of being with God begins in the beginning of Genesis, and you look at the creation of man and the very creation itself that God created the 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 cosmos and all the order of where we live, and into that context, He placed Adam and Eve. And Scripture describes for us a, a, a relationship between God and the first couple that was, that was unhindered by sin. They were able to worship God. They were able to serve God the way they ought to, not encumbered by sin like we are, not, uh, not distracted by temptation like we are, not in a fallen world, but in, a, in a, a, a sinless world. They were able to serve God and worship Him in that way. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Anytime we think of God now, anytime we ponder uh, God's presence and, and what God is like, we do so with fallen minds. We do so with limited understandings of what's, what's possible, what, what God can really be like. We can't comprehend uh, a life without temptation and sin or a, a thoughts without temptation and sin because of the way we've always lived. And so it, it, uh, it causes you to spend time thinking about what that must have been like for Adam and Eve who knew no sin, being able to relate to God in that way without those barriers, without those things that would block our uh, relationship with God. And of course, you and I live in a, in a world where uh, even as Christians, even as Christians who have grown and and, uh, and, and learn much of God from His Word and, and grown in our walk with Him, yet we still carry with us, don't we, D- distracting thoughts and temptations and memories of sin and, and other things that would, that would get in the way. Well, of course, uh, that's what ended up happening to the first couple. Though they had that kind of relationship with God, yet sin entered the, the picture and marred that, and, and that, that, that intimacy, that fellowship, the being in God's presence that they had was kind of cut off, wasn't it? as they were actually driven out of the garden, and then there, there was, uh, there was the, the angel put there with the flaming sword to uh, keep them from coming back in. And so there's, this, there's a picture there of a distance. There's now a distance between God and man. Where, where there had been fellowship, n- now there is disunity. There is disfellowship. There is, there is a breakdown in that relationship. And that's the way the Bible begins. That history is is the context, it's the backdrop uh, against which we read the entirety of Scripture. So it's not a, uh, not a very encouraging picture, but it's important for us to understand that as the background. And so with that, thinking about the way things were and uh, back in the garden and, and, and all of that, we, we realize that, that that being the backdrop, yet God made promises... That, that He would be with us. There is a promise of God with us. And of course, there's one right there in that first story in Genesis chapter 3, but it gets specified a little bit more in Isaiah. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be in several different passages today, and, and, uh, and this, this one's a very familiar one, particularly this time of year. But there was a promise given that God would be with His people. And this was given to a king uh, during the time of Isaiah. And this, this king, now at, at this point in the history of Israel, there's been a split and there are now two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's the context in which we find ourselves. The northern kingdom there, uh, the capital city is Samaria. And in the New Testament, we get the word Samaritan because they are uh, connected with those people of the north. Now, these are the brothers and sisters of the Judahites. They're, they're, they're Jews. They're the, the promised people of God, but, but here they are in this context. You've got King Ahaz in Judah in the south, and he's being invaded. He's being besieged by the Samaritans, his brothers to the north, coupled with the Syrians. So you have these two enemies of uh, Judah have, ga- have gathered together, and they are surrounding the city, and, uh, and they're going to destroy it. Uh, King Ahaz and the people realize they've got two larger armies coming against them. They don't stand a chance hiding behind the walls in Jerusalem. And so they expect that the destruction is going to be imminent. And in that context, God sends uh, a message. God sends a promise. And the promise comes in the form of uh, the birth of a baby. So we see in 7.14 of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the prophet goes on to talk about what's going to happen with this baby. That, yes, things look bleak and it looks like you're about to be destroyed because the enemy armies are stacked up against you and there's no way you can win. But, but there's going to be a virgin who's going to uh, bear a child and, and that child is going to be called Emmanuel. And as that child grows up, by, by the time he knows to choose the right from the wrong, these two nations that are, that are too massive and too great for you who are warring against you, they will be made nothing. You won't have to worry about them anymore. The siege will be completed and, and they will be defeated and you will be victorious over them. And here's the promise, this baby is going to be born. And as the baby grows, uh, you will see that before the baby gets to be too old, able to choose the right from the wrong by that time, your enemies will be defeated. So it was a, an encouragement to Ahaz. That was the promise of uh, this one, uh, this virgin who would, uh, in this case, uh, she would get married, she would bear a child, and she would call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel means, as as we've sung this morning, God with us. It's a reminder, this baby, the birth of the baby is a reminder that, that God is with you. And when you call upon that name, when you remember that name, when you read about the birth of that baby in the newspaper and you see his name, Emmanuel, you're reminded God is with us. And so it doesn't really matter that we have two armies that are too great for us at the the gates because God is with us. Well, of course, that was the, the encouragement that uh, they were to receive. That was the promise that was given in Isaiah's day. But, but that baby right there and that context right there actually pointed beyond uh, that context to a greater context to, to come. The, that, that baby and the promise of the baby pointed to the birth of a baby later on who really would be born to a virgin. And he would give a greater deliverance than simply deliverance from some armies. And so we have that promise given in Isaiah's day, and then if you turn to the New Testament, turn to Matthew chapter 1, first chapter of the New Testament, you're going to see that the promise is fulfilled at Advent. That very promise that was given, and it had, it had immediate fulfillment. There was a baby born, and, and, and those, those armies were defeated, etc. But uh, there's a greater fulfillment that's to come. And, of course, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, after the genealogy section there, we come to verse 18, a very familiar passage, but you're going to recognize some of the language in here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So we saw that the promise was given in the days of Isaiah. The promise was given in that particular context, but it had greater significance beyond just that context that actually What God was saying was, I'm going to send one born of a virgin who is going to be the one who will deliver you from your greatest enemy, which is not the army of the Sumerians. It's not the army of the Syrians. It's not any army. It's sin. There will be one who will be sent for you, who will deliver you from sin and its consequences sin, and its judgment. And this child will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel had a particular con- uh, importance, significance in the original context in which it was given. There they they, they were armies at the gates. They needed to know God was with them. And so God says, I'm going to send a baby and you're to call his name Emmanuel because I am with you. In that in that context, in that military struggle, in that political situation, historical situation in in which you find yourself. But when Emmanuel, Jesus comes on the scene, it's a picture of God being with sinners. Even in the context where there is sin throughout this world and we live in this fallen world and we have judgment named upon us because of our sin. Yet because of Jesus, God will be with us. Now, if you think about this, the fall happened all those thousands of years ago. And then about a thousand years before Christ or 700 and something years before Christ, you have the promise made by God that that he will send this baby born of a virgin who will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And then 700 and something years pass until Jesus comes on the scene and we read what we just read in Matthew chapter 1. All that time has passed. If you think about the, 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 the calendar of God, you know, I tend to think in terms of a watch. You know That's how, that's how fast uh, our, our time works. And, and, and God works on a much grander scale. And he fulfills his promise. He sent Emmanuel back in Isaiah's day. Much more importantly, hundreds and hundreds of years later, he sent Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us, to fulfill his promise that he made all all that time ago. And so I think before we move on, we've uh, we've got an application here that we could think of, and that is to believe God's promises. If you were there, uh, if you were the first one reading Isaiah, if you were Ahaz himself, and you hear this prophecy, and you, you realize the, the, the immediate application of it, but then you begin to think, well, but we still have enemies that will defeat us, and, and, and the enemies are not just armies, but it's a greater, a greater reality, a greater danger that we actually face. And you begin to think, when will God actually be with us? Not just as a baby, not just a baby with a good name, uh, born under prophetic circumstances, but when will we actually get to be back with God? When will it, when will it go back to being like it was in the garden? where there was unfettered access to God, where there was was fellowship and intimacy with God without sin being in the way. When would we get back to that? When will that ever happen? And, And perhaps, and no doubt, many began to doubt and fret that that would ever happen. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people would have that thought. Well, this is pretty good, but man, wouldn't it be great to be in God's presence, openly, fully, to have access to God that way. And then we read Matthew 1 about Jesus who is the ultimate one, born as a baby, born as Emmanuel, God with us. God fulfills his promises, so believe his promises, even if it takes a long time for him to fulfill them. So are you struggling with feeling alone? You feel like perhaps God has abandoned you? You don't sense his presence? You don't, you don't, uh, you don't have a, a, perhaps there have been times of greater intimacy with God or you've really felt like uh, you were, um, you had God on your side as it were, you were closely connected with God and, and, and you, you and God were tight as it were. And now it doesn't feel like that. Now you wonder, well, I don't, I don't sense the same blessings anymore. I don't feel like those things are there. Maybe he's gone. God tells us that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes it feels like he has left you. Oftentimes it feels like he has forsaken you. But he will never leave you nor forsake you, regardless of what you might feel in a given circumstance. So believe His promises. Or perhaps you're someone who carries around a weight of guilt and fear that maybe your sins are too great for God to forgive. Because if we only knew what you had done, if we only knew about this situation, if, if, if anybody really knew about that, and, and, and really, because God does know about it, maybe you're thinking, that's too much for God to forgive. The blood of Christ can cover that. There is forgiveness in Him. And there is, no, there is no sin that is too bad to be forgiven. That we really do read in, in 1 John uh, chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have some sin in your past that is greater than the blood of Christ? That is of more weight than the offering that Jesus made when he gave his life on the tree? No, you don't. And forgiveness is there for you, and perhaps you don't feel it. And yet, forgiveness is there for you. Believe the promises of God when he says in 1 John 1 and verse 9 that, that confessing your sin and, and uh, he, God is faithful and just to forgive it. That's a promise. So believe his promise, and bring that massive load of guilt that you have and leave it there. Confess it to him and find forgiveness in Christ. Believe the promises of God. Or perhaps you're overcome with affliction and suffering. Maybe you're going through hard times that people around you couldn't imagine. Maybe maybe those people who are aware of those situations, they're just like, I don't even know what to say to that situation. It's so bad. Maybe you're going through that kind of a hard time. But as bad as you are suffering, that suffering will be more than compensated in glory. Did you know that? More than compensated. Not just made up like, this is really bad, I hope it gets better and back to zero. No, it will be more than compensated. In comparison to that, this affliction that you are facing, this, in comparison to glory, this affliction that you are facing, that you're going through, begins to lighten. Thinking about what glory is like. We read this in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 For this light, momentary affliction, in in comparison to glory, this this affliction, though it might last 90 years and though it might be tortuous, is light and momentary in in contrast with glory. And so Paul says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient they're passing away the things that are unseen are eternal so believe god's promises so that's that's the promise of god with us and we uh, turn back to Revelation chapter 21 and we see the perfection of God with us. Back to the next to last chapter. The perfection of God with us. See, Revelation chapter 21 gives us this, this beautiful image of the final state, the new heavens, the new earth, when, when everything is made right, when all of this comes to conclusion, when it's brought back to be what it ought to be, when it's, when it's finally restored, when it's finally redeemed, and, and all of that work is completed. And at that time, in verse 3 in Revelation 21, we we read these words already. We read about a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The way things were back in Genesis, with that unity, with that fellowship, and that, that unfettered access and worship of God, by sinless creatures is restored and, in fact, amplified in the new heavens and the new earth so that this is the reality. This isn't just the promise of what things will be, that one day it will be like this, that God will be with you. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man in that time. Restoration has happened Sin has been dealt with, the separation from God has been dealt with. So we get to be back in God's presence in that way. And that's the that's the conclusion. That's the direction that it's all going. And and those words are wonderful. The dwelling place of God is not some far reaches of, of uh, of a different location, of a different reality or a different plane or something like that. The dwelling place of God is with man. They get to be his people and him as their God. It's restored. It's brought back. I've traveled overseas quite a bit, and I've been gone for various lengths of time, and and, uh, and it gets old being away, doesn't it? Being gone, your family misses you, you miss your family. All is not right in the world, you know. It's not great. And when you're finally back together, you arrive at the airport or you get home, to your family, and you finally get to be all joined together with your family. Isn't it wonderful? That reunion, things being the way they ought to be, you get to be together. Well, that's a, a tiny little picture of what it will be like in glory, particularly the new heavens and the new earth here where we will be all together as God's family, as God's people, with God dwelling in our midst. So we can take hope. And we can rejoice even now that though that's not the way things are now, That's not what's going on now. It will be. That's the direction things are going. That's how God will wrap this up. We will get to have unfettered access to God and His presence once again, without any hindrances of sin or guilt or temptation. Just being God's people, worshiping and serving Him as we want to. And that's where it's going. So we've seen the beginning of the story. We've seen how uh, it at the Advent, um, we see that in Christ is how it's going to be uh, brought to pass. And we see at the end of the whole story how it's going to be wrapped up. But there's a problem with God with us. There's a problem. We saw the promise. We saw the perfection. But there is a problem with God with us. Back to Luke chapter 5. We're going to spend some time looking at a couple of different paragraphs here in Luke chapter 5 that are, uh, that are really powerful. And as you're turning there, I was, uh, I was thinking about what happens in this story. And I was reminded of a time when, uh, when John Duncan and I, not, not Pastor John, though he is a pastor now, but the, John Duncan, who is my age, and I were... At uh, Bible school together, and and we were uh, we we met together uh, once a week, and we would pray together and talk together, and, and uh, memorize scripture and just spend time together. And um, we were working our way through memorizing James chapter one. We hopped on the elevator, and uh, and as we get into the elevator, uh, here you know John and I are dressed like college kids. You know we we were probably in shorts and, and t-shirts, and we may or may not have showered that day, and, and our hair may or may not have been done. And uh, I, I know I hadn't shaved. I didn't need to. And, and uh, we weren't all that clean looking. And we get into the elevator. And who's standing there but the president of the school? And the president of the school was a, uh, an impressive looking man. And he was a professional. And he had a doctorate. And he uh, was an important man. And he dressed like an important man. He was, he was dressed in a suit suit. With a, with a tie that was tied perfectly. In fact, his tie was tied so perfectly that we who were just learning how to tie ties at the time, when someone figured out how to do it right, we called it the stole knot because Joe Stoll was the president at, at Moody at the time. So we called it the stole knot. Well, I still use the stole knot when I tie my tie. He's that put together. He's clean shaven. He smells good. He looks professional. His hair is done. He carries himself in a professional manner. He carries himself like... Uh, like, like someone we wanted to be like. And here John and I were, you know, kind of in our grubbies. And we felt like uh, we didn't compare well to Dr. Stoll. Well, then he asked, what are you guys up to? And we said, well, we felt very important. You know, we're, we were going to pray together, you know, as, as uh, students at a Bible school ought to do. And we were going to memorize Scripture together. Oh, what passage are you memorizing? Ah, James chapter 1, you know. So he starts quoting it. And we learned our lesson. <laughs> we didn't compare well when we were in his presence. We, we had watched him, we had seen him, we had heard him, we were used to him, and he was a, a, kind of a, a fixture on campus, and yet you stand next to him in your grubbies trying to work your way to memorize verse 3 of James chapter 1 or whatever, and he just rattles it off in his professional suit, and we realized that, that we had a ways to go. Luke chapter 5, we see something not entirely different, though, of course, on a very different scale. Luke 5, starting at verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, Jesus, sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Sinful man, O oh Lord. Here you've got this situation where Jesus is teaching. He's on the beach. He needs more room, and so he gets into Simon's boat, and he puts out a little bit so that he can sit down and teach with, with uh, you know, some freedom and he can speak to more people. And, and then after that's over, Jesus turns to the professional fishermen who had been fishing this exact area not long before, and he tells them, let's go out and put your nets down for a catch. The professional fishermen know there are no fish there. They have scoured those waters and they've caught nothing. There's nothing there to find. Jesus says, go and do it. And so they go and do it. They let down their nets and they catch so many that the nets are breaking. They catch so many that they have to call their buddies over to fill their boats as well. And everybody's boat is about to sink. There were no fish there. And now there were fish everywhere because Jesus said so. And Peter, for uh, all of his uh, qualities and and all of his foibles, he understood. He understood that that he was in the presence of someone greater than he might have imagined. He was in the presence of of Jesus who had such power and such authority that he could speak to professional fishermen and say, redo what you've been doing because now it's going to work because I said so. And that's what happens. Fish abundantly fish all over the place and and so Peter sees that and he realizes this is not normal there is something very special there's something very unusual about Jesus so much so that that he would say to Jesus depart from me for I'm a sinful man O Lord far from having warm fuzzies for Jesus over this situation wow Jesus can do anything isn't that great And I get to be right here with him. I get to benefit from all this stuff. Peter began to understand, uh, we're dealing with something on an entirely different level. I am a sinful man, and I better not be in his presence anymore. understood that there was something special, that in in comparison to Jesus, in, in the presence of Jesus, he realized that Peter didn't come off well. His sin was showing in comparison with Jesus, who was able to display such... Such power, such, such, such knowledge, such control and mastery over the natural order. Normal people don't have that kind of control. Don't have that kind of power. And so Peter was not comfort, comforted. Instead, he was terrified. Terrified. So much so that he would ask Jesus to go away and leave him alone. Just in passing... A comment here, if our view of Jesus does not cause us revulsion against our own sin, then our view of Jesus needs some work. We should be repulsed at our own sin. We should be aware of our own sin. And it should be, it should be a, a shocking thing, a striking thing, when we're once again presented with the reality of our own sin in the presence of Jesus. If you remember the story of Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah has this great vision of, of the Lord in the temple, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and the, and the, and the, the, the angels, and the holy, 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 and all that. What's, what was Isaiah's response? Wow, I get to have a front row seat. What was his response? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. In, in the presence of that vision, and that vision is given in such a way as to, as to magnify God, as to make clear what God is really like, and in the presence of this wonderful vision of, of what God is like, Isaiah, Isaiah says, Woe is me. I'm sinful. Just like Peter, in this case, says, Lord, go away. I'm sinful. He was made aware of his own guilt. And of course, the story ends there, and it's a great message for us uh, to, to think about the reality of Jesus' sinlessness, his power, and the reality of our own sinfulness and, and being under his control and actually uh, because of our sin we're guilty before him, etc. But but the story goes on in in Luke chapter five and brings us to how this problem of being in God's presence will be solved. You see, being in God's presence is not a good thing for sinners. It means destruction for sinners. As Peter came to understand, as Isaiah came to understand, holy God who is almighty means that sinners can't come into His presence. Destruction awaits. So how do we resolve that? Well, we see the problem solved even in the next paragraph here. Luke chapter 5. The story moves on, talking about someone else. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And leprosy was not just a disease. It was not just uncomfortable. It was all of those things. It was visible to other people. It caused uh, it caused people to have to cover up and, 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 and cry out, leper, leper, and, and so that people would stay away from them lest you catch it or lest you become um, defiled by being in their presence. Leprosy is a, was a big problem. But, but more than just the physical stuff, more than just the, the suffering of the illness, there was the uncleanness that came with it. So that lepers were, were barred from entering the sanctuary. They were barred from God's presence. In fact, they were were outcasts even from the presence of the people. And so when this leper shows up, this is someone who knows what it means to be separated from God because he hasn't been able to go into the temple since he got leprosy. No idea how long that was. But he was barred from it. So here's a man who comes on the scene who, who knows what it means to be separated, knows what it means to be outcast, knows what it means to have a barrier between him and God, because he can't even go to the temple because of his leprosy. So Jesus is in one of the cities. there came become a man with, uh, who was full of leprosy. And when this man saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, "Lord, if you will, you can make me." clean this leper who is separated from God separated from God's people even when he sees Jesus he realizes there is the solution there is the one who can take away my uncleanness there is the one who can bring me back into fellowship with God's people and with God himself There is the one who can make it so I can be healed and thus I can have access again. And so he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He seeks cleansing from Jesus. He seeks restoration to God and to his people in Jesus. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. This man comes to Jesus and asks for a cleansing. He he wants to be brought back in. Not not only does he want the disease to go away because it's uncomfortable and all that. He he wants to be restored to God and his people. He wants to have this barrier taken away. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, if if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus puts his hands on him and says, I will. I am willing. Be clean. And he makes him clean. He heals him from his leprosy. What a a beautiful picture. What a beautiful image. And and you may be reading through uh, Luke and wonder why this is there, but this is a huge part of why it's there. You see, Peter has just realized about himself, I've got leprosy. Not physical leprosy. I've got leprosy of my soul, as it were. I've got sin. Where can I go to deal with my sin? Where can I go to be brought back into fellowship? Where can I go to be made clean Well, this leper shows up on the scene to show us how it is that we can be made clean again. And so he comes to Jesus and knows Jesus' response, I will. The man asks him, Are you willing? If you're willing, you can do this. And Jesus says, I'm willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. It's gone. He's made clean. He's restored. He's brought back into this position. He's he's had this leprosy uh, cleansed from him. You see, Peter's problem is his his sin. He's realized that problem. And by the way, it's good when people realize that their sin is their problem. It's better for people to realize that their their real problem in life is their sin and what that does between them and God. It's better for them to to realize that and even deal with the pain of that. Realizing for a moment, uh uh-oh, maybe even realizing for a long time, uh uh-oh. But this passage would have us understand what that person then ought to do, what Peter then ought to do with the guilt of his sin and what you and I ought to do with the guilt of our sin, which is run to Christ. Realizing that, Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. You can take away my sin. And when we do that, what does Jesus say? I will so be clean and immediately the uncleanness leaves us just like it left this man and so what a powerful powerful picture that we have here in in this leper who comes to jesus who is unclean and who realizes it and doesn't want to remain that way anymore and so he asks Jesus, and Jesus heals him, and immediately the leprosy leaves him. And that teaches us that Jesus is able, he is powerful, and he is willing to save. Verse 14, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. What does Jesus command him to do right away? Go and present yourself and make an offering. Go and enter immediately into worship. You you started this story. You, You approached me today, Jesus says, unclean, separated from God, a leper. You have been cleansed. What ought to be your next step? Go immediately to worship. Go immediately to worship God. That's what Jesus tells him to do. And that's what you and I ought to do. That's what Peter ought to do. Go immediately to worship. So a couple of points of application I really want to close with today. And the first is that, that you may be that leper. You may be the one who, who realizes, has come to realize, maybe even just this morning, that because of your sin, you're separated from God. You're not just at arm's length. You've been, you've been kicked out of God's presence because of your sin. And there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do to solve that. There's nothing you can go back and undo or redo to fix that. The only thing that you can do is come to Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. Come to Christ. And folks, he is willing and he is able and he is powerful to cleanse you and to take you from that place of being cut off from God's presence right into his family, where you can have that kind of union with God. And yes, we still have sin that we deal with. And yes, we still have doubts and we have fallen minds and, and we live in this world, etc. But God brings us right into his own family. He places his spirit within us. He, he, he he, he makes us his own children. We have access to God and we're able to enter into worship and we're no longer kept at arm's length. And there will come a time in Revelation 21 when, when that will even be put away. Even the, 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 the physical struggles that we have and, the, and the, the wrestling with temptation and sin will all be done away. We'll be brought right into his presence. That, that can be yours today by faith in Christ. Just come to him. Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. And He's willing, and He can cleanse you. And there's a second point of application for us. We ought to fuel our worship with the knowledge that we have been graciously made clean by Christ's work. You see what the leper did right away, what Jesus told him to do. The man's healed, He didn't say, Go home and kiss your wife. He didn't say, go home and hug your kids. He didn't say, uh, go and you know, be in, in public uh, amongst people you haven't been able to for a long time. That's not what he says. He says, go immediately and enter into worship. You've been made clean. Folks, you and I should fuel our worship by, by calling to mind that we were just like that leper and Jesus has made us clean. And thus we want to worship. We want to enter in. We want to we, we want to sing to God. We want to pray together to God. We want to come and join in, and worship God. So let that knowledge of our past leprosy and Jesus' healing of us fuel our worship. In the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of our time today, we, we, we realized and thought about the fact that we were created in a in a particular relationship with God, with no sin blocking the way. And we praise God that God made a promise that though though sin has blocked the way and and, and we've been kicked out of the garden, yet God by His promise says, I will bring you back in. And once again, God will be with you. I will send Emmanuel, God with us, and He will dwell among you, and he He will be the obedient one. He will do all that it takes to reconcile leprous man back to holy, clean God. Jesus himself will do it. And so that, that is ours simply by coming to Christ and saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And we're reminded again of Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4 of how it all concludes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. have heard the message of Christ before. We've heard even this gospel message before. We've, we've been confronted before with our own sin. Father, I thank You for Jesus who has taken my sin upon Himself that it would be punished by You in His body on the tree. And that forgiveness For that sin is mine by faith in Christ, by coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, if you will, you have the power and the position and the right and the righteousness to make me clean. I thank you for Jesus who, unlike me, has always obeyed you fulfilling your law, completely establishing all righteousness in himself, and that righteousness, too, is mine by faith. belongs to anyone by faith who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Advent. Thank you for you sending your Son into this world to accomplish that for us. and Father, we look forward to that day when we who are in Christ will be united with you in such a a perfect and full and unfettered way that you will dwell with us as our God and we will be your people and tears will be wiped away and death will be no more and We will see victory fully and finally and forever. And all of this is really kicked off when you, by your Spirit, conceived a baby in the womb of the Virgin whose birth we celebrate today. So, Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the Christ of Christmas and what he means for us. And I pray that each one of us would go forth and worship, having our worship fueled by these truths, this forgiveness that's ours in Christ, this life that's ours in Christ, this cleansing that is ours in Jesus. So bless us today as we go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go today. Merry Christmas. There are uh, gifts that Miss Brianna has for all of the kids who are in the service today. And uh, so she wants to give those over here. Um, There will be no church service tonight. There will be no church service in the evening next Sunday either. Any other announcements I'm going to forget because I'm going to forget them. Happy New Year. That's right. It'll be the new year next time we see you. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.